grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm not really preaching until I ask you to pray with me. But uh, I'm just saying, hey, I haven't been with you since July. Hey. You know, as a Lutheran, I have to tell you, I'm always a little confused about the whole bowing at the altar thing because we do it when we come in and when we leave and the rest of the time it's good. <laughs> and um, so when I'm walking back and forth there, there's a little bit in the back of my head going, am I supposed to, if I don't? I remember one time Deborah and I went on vacation to D.C. We used to go between Christmas and New Year's. This was before we had children. Uh, because nobody's there and all the museums are open. <laughs> and we went to the National Cathedral. You see it with National Cathedral. Huge. The chancel is wider than this, this nave. And James Forbes, uh, a black professor of preaching at Union Seminary who was famous, was preaching that day. And he's sitting way up in the, uh, a pew chair behind the pulpit. And the bishop of Metro D.C. was sitting in a chair way up on the other side behind the lectern, and the verger or the deacon was going back and forth carrying messages. <laughs> and he'd get in the middle of that chancel, which was this slick kind of uh, stone, and he'd get there and he'd say, he'd suddenly remember, and he'd stop and sort of slide, like, while he got over the reference and go. That was like five or six times. It became during the prelude. And ever since then, every time I'm walking around this year, that's in my head. <laughs> so if you think I should have stopped and then just remember, when I come in, when I leave, the rest of it's just when I think of it. <laughs> Pray with me a moment, please. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O my rock and my redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> One of my favorite movies is Stand By Me. Uh, you're familiar with it. I see some nods. You know, the, the young adolescent coming of age story uh, based on a Stephen King novel. It's about four eighth grade boys in a small main town in the late 50s, early 60s. These boys have nothing in common except that they don't fit. They don't fit in at home. They don't fit in at school. And so they hang out with each other. One day, they lie to their parents None of you ever did that, did you? <laughs> Lied to their parents. I'm spending the night at so-and-so's. They all were somewhere and snuck out of town to go on an adventure. They went hiking through overnight, camping out, telling ghost stories, smoking stolen cigarettes, you know, an adventure. One little scene for the day. While walking along the railroad tracks, two of the boys get into an argument as to whether Mighty Mouse could beat up Superman. <laughs> Burn. Do you think Mighty Mouse could beat up Superman? Okay. 
Are you nuts? Of course not. Burn. But Mighty Mouse is really strong. I was watching yesterday, and he picked up five elephants. Five. Ten. Look. Mighty Mouse is a cartoon. <laughs> Superman is a real guy. <laughs> no way a cartoon beats up a real guy. Burns sighed and looked sad. Yeah, I guess you're right. A few more steps. He perked up and he said, Bet it would be a good fight, though. <laughs> Today's gospel lesson. A group called the Sadducees, a group of Jewish <coughs> believers who have a particular position on the resurrection based on the fact that they based all their belief system on what is known the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books. Uh, the prophets and the other writings were for them additional, but you didn't base doctrine on it. They could find nothing about the resurrection there. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And they asked Jesus a very silly question about the resurrection. Well, every time I hear it, I, I hear Herman's Hermits singing in my head. You know the song? I'm entering the eight by She had seven husbands before, and every one was a Henry. Pretty silly question based on the idea that if someone died childless, his brother should marry his widow to provide children for him. Well, he's dead. Why does he need children for the future, for his history, though, for his... What's the word? Legacy. 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 She needed to be provided for. So it starts out as something logical, makes some sense in that culture. But they took it to such an illogical end that you all got the humor just by me reading the gospel, didn't you? <laughs> it's silly. Teddy and Vern raised what to us is a silly question, but for the boys, it was a very serious matter. For the Sadducees raised what was for them a very silly question, trying to make Jesus look stupid. But Jesus knew that very many people were then and now very serious as they struggled with this question. After this, what's next? Is this life, this world, all there is? What if anything happens after we die? And what does the answer to that question mean for us while we're still living? My father, Lowell Chilton, was one of those who had a lot of questions about the Bible and traditional Christian orthodoxy. He regularly attended church, but he never joined. Because he wanted to reserve the right to respectfully disagree with anything that made no sense to him. <laughs> Resurrection was one of those things. A few years before he died, he brought it up with me. 
He said, when I was in the Army in World War II, I was on one of them troop ships on the Atlantic going to Europe. Then one of the fellers got sick and died on the, on the trip. Now they wrapped his body up and had a flag laying over there on deck and they prayed over him and then they slid his body out into the ocean. Now, I figure that various fish ate his body. So his body went in all those directions with those fish and then those fish died. So in the resurrection, how'd they get his body back? <laughs> Before I could think of what to say, my mother, whose brother had been buried at sea in the Pacific during that war, interjected, Lowell, you think too much. <laughs> if God can make the world out of nothing, God can put them boys back together. Now leave Delmer alone. <laughs> it was some years before I realized that Daddy wasn't simply being his usual empirically obtuse self. That young man buried at sea was not the only friend he lost in that war. Far from it. A few months before he died at the age of 80 in 2004, he for the first time told me about one of his encounters with death in World War II. He and his squad were on the edge of a French village. They were in an abandoned house. The house opened on both sides onto a street. There was a central hallway about as long as this aisle. He was in one doorway guarding that street. Another person was in the other doorway at the other end of the hall guarding that street. Everybody else was trying to get some sleep. He walked down the hall to the other door to get a light for his cigarette from Jay. Daddy turned and walked back down the hall and about halfway there was a sudden boom. He hit the ground and suddenly wooden door jam parts and body parts were falling around him and he looked back where Jake had been standing, there was nothing. A mortar shell had hit that doorway. And 60 years later, sitting at the kitchen table of his farmhouse in rural North Carolina, Daddy cried. Both because he lived and because Jake died. Daddy came home to the farm in North Carolina and didn't talk about the war, not with his children, and according to my mother, not with her either. But as he began to come more and more face to face with his own mortality, and with a very personal encounter with eternity, he began to ask the questions that had lurked in his heart for 60 years. What happens when we die? Is this all there is? If there is a God, 
Where is God when my world falls apart? Blows up in shambles around me. Yes, in the gospel, the Sadducees raised a silly question, yet Jesus knew that even for them there was a serious reason behind it. Jesus knew that many who were listening to him also had their questions about what happens after this. And Jesus did not confront them with their silliness, but instead he dove deeply into what does it mean to live in the hands of God? What does it mean to live with the eternality of God in the face of our all too often short and painful lives? He explored the importance of living by the values and promises of God's kingdom now. The first thing Jesus did was to gently make it clear that this age, our life now, is connected to but different from that age, what is to come next? He says, in this age, we marry and die and all that. In the next age, life is different, but we are connected to what we are here. What the Bible calls the resurrection is not simply life as we know it now going on forever and ever. Amen. Life now is life dealing daily with the looming threat and reality of decay and disease, what Martin Luther summed up as sin, death, and the devil. In this world, there is no avoiding this, these things, is there? Sin, death, and the devil surround us, and if we're not careful, they will control us. We try not to sin. Anybody in here just wake up in the morning and say, what kind of sin do I think I'm going to do today? <laughs> How many of you are willing to say, I get to the end of the day, I haven't sinned at all? <clears throat> we try not to sin, but we do. We try not to get sick and die, but we do. And it is in our efforts to avoid sickness and death that we all too often sin and make deals with the devil, betraying our eternal values for time-limited survival and success. And Jesus tells us life as resurrection people does not have to be like that. As resurrection people, we do not have to fear decline and death, we do not have to make deals with the age or the devil in order to survive. Because whether we are in this age or in the next, God is with us. Verse 38. Now he is God, not of the dead, but of the living. When Moses talked to God at the burning bush, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were physically dead. And that's Jesus' point. Because 
Yahweh said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, present tense. What difference does the promise of the resurrection of eternality with God make in how we live our lives now? How does this eternality not only comfort us concerning the death of our loved ones, but also give meaning to our lives as we live day by day in this age while anticipating the age to come. This promise does two things. The obvious one is that it removes from us the fear of death as a motivator of our actions. When self-preservation or the preservation of our family or the preservation of our lifestyle are no longer what drives us. When we are no longer afraid, we are free to pursue, in the words of Philippians 4, 8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, without concern for what such a stand in life might cost us. Hope of eternality removes from us not only the fear of death, but the motivation to compromise in order to survive. Secondly, it helps us remove the artificial barriers that we have built up between us, the good, and them, the bad in the world. Most of those barriers are because them threaten us. And we want to oppose them to provide hope for ourselves, right? We draw those lines. And hope for eternality starts removing those artificial barriers and eventually we come to awareness that like those misfit boys in Stand By Me, we're all misfits. We're all on a journey of self-discovery looking for other people to walk with us and walking on a trail that leads us through death into the true life of what Shakespeare called the undiscovered country. And so we walk together through this age as a family of faith, of people who fit with each other mostly because we don't fully fit anywhere else. And as we walk, we come to know ourselves to be truly citizens of God's kingdom, so, we can live by kingdom rules now, even if they look silly. Rules like, love your enemy. Rules like, turn the other cheek. Rules like, do unto others. Rules like, the one who saves his life will lose it, but the one who loses life for my sake will gain it. We live by rules that seem silly and make no sense in a world ruled by death and the struggle for survival of the fittest. But we live by rules that make serious and perfect sense in lives centered on hope and faith in the eternal love of an eternal God. Amen. Amen. Amen.